Section 23 of Manners, Customs, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart. Manners, Customs, and Dress during the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance period by Paul Lacroix. Section 23. Law and the Administration of Justice the family the origin of government origin of supreme power amongst the franks the legislation of barbarism humanized by christianity right of justice inherent to the right of property the laws under charlemagne judicial reforms witnesses duels etc organization of royal justice under saint louis the chatelet and the provost of paris Jurisdiction of Parliament, its duties and its responsibilities. The bailiwicks. Struggles between Parliament and the Châtelet. Codification of the customs and usages. Official cupidity. Comparison between the Parliament and the Châtelet. Amongst the ancient Celtic and German population, before any Greek or Roman innovations had become engrafted onto their customs, everything, even political power, as well as the rightful possession of lands, appears to have been dependent on families. Julius Caesar, in his Commentaries, tells us that each year the magistrates and princes assigned portions of land to families, as well as to associations of individuals having a common object, whenever they thought proper, and to any extent they chose, though in the following year the same authorities compelled them to go and establish themselves elsewhere. We again find families, familiae, and associations of men, cognationes hominum, spoken of by Caesar in the barbaric laws, and referred to in the histories of the Middle Ages under the names of genealogiae, faramini, pharae, etc., but the extent of the relationship, parentela, included under the general appellation of families, varied among the Franks, Lombards, Visigoths, and Bavarians. Generally, among all the people of German origin, the relationship only extended to the seventh degree. Amongst the Celts it was determined merely by common ancestry, with endless subdivisions of the tribe into distinct families. Among the Germans, from whom modern Europe has its origin, we find only three primary groups, namely, first, the family proper, comprising the father, mother, and children, and the collateral relatives of all degrees, secondly, the vassals, ministeriales, or servants of the free class, and thirdly, the servants, mansionarii, colony, liti, servi, of the servile class attached to the family proper. Domestic authority was represented by the mund, or head of the family, also called rex, the king, who exercised a special power over the persons and goods of his dependents, a guardianship, in fact, with certain rights and prerogatives, and a sort of civil and political responsibility attached to it. Thus, the head of the family, who was responsible for his wife and for those of his children who lived with him, was also responsible for his slaves and domestic animals. To such a pitch did these primitive people carry their desire that justice should be done in all cases of infringement of the law, that the head was held legally responsible for any injury which might be done by the bow or by the sword of any of his dependents, 
without it being necessary that he should himself have handled either of these weapons. Long before the commencement of the Merovingian era, the family, whose sphere of action had at first been an isolated and individual one, became incorporated into one great national association, which held official meetings at stated periods on the Malberg, Parliament Hill. These assemblies alone possessed supreme power in its full signification. The titles given to certain chiefs of Rex, King, Dukes, Duke, Graf, Count, Bren, General of the Army, only defined the subdivisions of that power, and were applied, the last exclusively, to those engaged in war, and the others to those possessing judicial and administrative functions. The duty of dispensing justice was specially assigned to the counts, who had to ascertain the cause of quarrels between parties and to inflict penalties. There was a count in each district and in each important town. There were, besides, several counts attached to the sovereign under the title of Counts of the Palace, Comites Palatii, an honorable position which was much sought after and much coveted on account of its pecuniary and other contingent advantages. The counts of the palace deliberated with the sovereign on all matters and all questions of state, and at the same time they were his companions in hunting, feasting, and religious exercises. They acted as arbitrators in questions of inheritance of the crown. During the minority of princes they exercised the same authority as that which the constitution gave to sovereigns who were of full age. They confirmed the nomination of the principal functionaries, and even those of the bishops. They gave their advice on the occasion of a proposed alliance between one nation and another, on matters connected with treaties of peace or of commerce, on military expeditions, or on exchanges of territory, as well as in reference to the marriage of a prince, and they incurred no responsibility beyond that naturally attached to persons in so distinguished a position among a semi-barbarous community. At first the legates, legati, and afterwards the king's ambassadors, missi dominici, the bishops and the dukes or commanders of the army, were usually selected from the higher court officials, such as the counts of the palace, whereas the ministeriales, forming the second class of the royal officials, filled inferior, though very honorable and lucrative posts of an administrative and magisterial character. Under the Merovingians, the legal principle of power was closely bound up with the possession of landed property. The subdivision of that power, however, closely followed this union, and the constant ruin of some of the nobles rapidly increased the power of others, who absorbed to themselves the lost authority of their more unfortunate brethren so much so that the frank kings perceived that society would soon escape their rule unless they speedily found a remedy for this state of things. It was then that the lois salique and ripoire appeared, which were subjected to successive revisions and gradual or sudden modifications, necessitated by political changes or by the increasing exigencies of the prelates and nobles. But far from lessening the supremacy of the king, the national customs which were collected in a code extended the limits of the royal authority and facilitated its exercise. In 596, Childebert, in concert with his Ludes, decided that in future the crime of rape should be punished with death, 
and that the judge of the district, Pages, in which it had been committed, should kill the ravisher and leave his body on the public road. He also enacted that the homicide should have the same fate. It is just, to quote the words of the law, that he who knows how to kill should learn how to die. Robbery, attested by seven witnesses, also involved capital punishment, and a judge convicted of having let a noble escape underwent the same punishment that would have been inflicted on the criminal. The punishment, however, differed according to the station of the delinquent. Thus, for the non-observance of Sunday, a Salian paid a fine of fifteen sols, a Roman seven and a half sols, a slave three sols, or his back paid the penalty for him. At this early period some important changes in the barbaric code had been made. The sentence of death, when once given, had to be carried out, and no arrangements between the interested parties could avert it. A crime could no longer be condoned by the payment of money. Robbery, even, which was still leniently regarded at that time, and beyond the Rhine even honoured, was pitilessly punished by death. We therefore cannot have more striking testimony than this of the abridgment of the privileges of the Frankish aristocracy and of the progress which the sovereign power was making towards absolute and uncontrolled authority over cases of life and death. By almost imperceptible steps, Roman legislation became more humane and perfect. Christianity engrafted itself into barbarism. Licentiousness was considered a crime. Crime became an offense against the king and society, and it was in one sense by the king's hand that the criminals received punishment. From the time of the baptism of Clovis, the church had much to do with the rearrangement of the penal code. For instance, marriage with a sister-in-law, a mother-in-law, an aunt, or a niece was forbidden. The traveling shows, nocturnal dances, public orgies, formerly permitted at feasts, were forbidden as being profane. In the time of Clotaire, the prelates sat as members of the Supreme Council, which was, strictly speaking, the highest court of the land, having the power of reversing the decisions of the judges of the lower courts. It pronounced sentence in conjunction with the king, and from these decisions there was no appeal. The nation had no longer a voice in the election of the magistrates, for the assemblies of Malberg did not meet except on extraordinary occasions, and all government and judicial business was removed to the supreme and often capricious arbitration of the king and his council. As long as the mayors of the palace of Austrasia and of that of Burgundy were only temporarily appointed, royal authority never wavered, and the sovereign remained supreme judge over his subjects. Suddenly, however, after the execution of Brunehaut, who was sacrificed to the hatred of the feudal lords, the mayoralty of the palace became a life appointment, and in consequence the person holding the office became possessed almost of supreme power, and the rightful sovereigns from that time practically became subject to the authority of the future usurpers of the crown. The Edict of 615, to which the ecclesiastical and state nobility were parties, was in its laws and customs completely at variance with former edicts. In resuming their places in the French constitution, the Merovingian kings, who had been deprived both of influence and authority, 
were compelled by the germanic institutions to return to the passive position which their predecessors had held in the forests of germany but they no longer had like the latter the prestige of military authority to enable them to keep the position of judges or arbitrators the canons of the council of paris which were confirmed by an edict of the king bearing the date the fifteenth of the calends of november six fifteen upset the political and legal system so firmly established in europe since the fifth century the royal power was shorn of some of its most valuable prerogatives one of which was that of selecting the bishops lay judges were forbidden to bring an ecclesiastic before the tribunals and the treasury was prohibited from seizing intestate estates with a view to increasing the rates and taxes and it was decreed that jews should not be employed in collecting the public taxes by these canons the judges and other officers of state were made responsible the benefices which had been withdrawn from the ludes were restored the king was forbidden from granting written orders praecepta, for carrying off rich widows young virgins and nuns and the penalty of death was ordered to be enforced against those who disobeyed the canons of the council thence sprung two new species of legislation one ecclesiastical the other civil between which royalty more and more curtailed of its authority was compelled for many centuries to struggle amongst the germanic nations the right of justice was inherent to landed property from the earliest times and this right had reference to things as well as to persons it was the patronage patrocinium of the proprietor and this patronage eventually gave origin to feudal jurisdictions and to lordly and customary rights in each domain we may infer from this that under the two first dynasties laws were made by individuals and that each lord so to speak made his own the right of jurisdiction seems to have been so inherent to the right of property that a landed proprietor could always put an end to feuds and personal quarrels could temporarily bring any lawsuit to a close and by issuing his ban stop the course of the law in his own immediate neighbourhood at least within a given circumference of his residence this was often done during any family festival or any civil or religious public ceremony on these occasions whoever infringed the ban of the master was liable to be brought before his court and to have to pay a fine the lord who was too poor to create a court of sufficient power and importance obtained assistance from his lord paramount or relinquished the right of justice to him whence originated the saying the fief is one thing and justice another the law of the visigoths speaks of nobles holding local courts similar to those of the official judge count or bishop king dagobert required the public and the private judges to act together in the law of lombardy landlords are mentioned who in virtue of the double title of nobles and judges assumed the right of protecting fugitive slaves taking shelter in their domains by an article of the Sali law the noble is made to answer for his vassal before the court of the count we must hence conclude that the landlord's judgment was exercised indiscriminately on the serfs the colons and the vassals and a statute of eight fifty five places under his authority 
even the freemen who resided with other persons. From these various sources we discover a curious fact which has hitherto remained unnoticed by historians, namely, that there existed an intermediate legislation between the official court of the count and his subordinates and the private courts, which was a kind of court of arbitration exercised by the neighbors, vicini, without the assistance of the judges of the county, and this was invested with a sort of authority which rendered its decisions binding. Private courts, however, were limited in their power. They were neither absolutely independent nor supreme and without appeal. All conducted their business much in the same way as the high, middle, and lower courts of the Middle Ages, and above all these authorities towered the king's jurisdiction. The usurpation of ecclesiastical bishops and abbots, who, having become temporal lords, assumed a domestic jurisdiction, was curtailed by the authority of the counts, and they were even more obliged to give way before that of the Misi Dominici, or the official delegates of the monarch. Charles the Bald, notwithstanding his enormous concessions to feudalism and to the church, never gave up his right of final appeal. During the whole of the Merovingian epoch, the Mall, Mollus, the general and regular assembly of the nation, was held in the month of March. Persons of every class met there clad in armor. Political, commercial, and judicial interests were discussed under the presidency of the monarch. But this did not prevent other special assemblies of the king's court, curia regalis, being held on urgent occasions. This court formed a parliament, parliamentum, which at first was exclusively military, but from the time of Clovis was composed of Franks, Burgundians, Gallo-Romans, as well as of feudal lords and ecclesiastics. As by degrees the feudal system became organized, the convocation of national assemblies became more necessary, and the administration of justice more complicated. Charlemagne decided that two malls should be held annually, one in the month of May, the other in the autumn, and in addition that in each county two annual plaids should meet, independently of any special malls and plaids which it should please him to convoke. In 788 the emperor found it necessary to call three general plaids, and besides these he was pleased to summon his great vassals, both clerical and lay, to the four principal feasts of the year. It may be asserted that the idea of royalty being the central authority in matters of common law dates from the reign of Charlemagne. The authority of royalty based on law took such deep root from that time forth that it maintained itself erect, notwithstanding the weakness of the successors of the great Charles, and the repeated infractions of it by the church and the great vassals of the crown. The authoritative and responsible action of a tribunal which represented society thus took the place of the unchecked animosity of private feuds and family quarrels, which were often avenged by the use of the gibbet, a monument to be found erected at almost every corner. Not infrequently in those early times, the unchecked passions of a chief of a party would be the only reason for inflicting a penalty. Often such a person would constitute himself sole judge, and without the advice of any one, he would pass sentence, and even with his own sword or any other available instrument, 
he would act as his own executioner. The tribunal thus formed denounced dueling, the pitiless warfare between man and man, and between family and family, and its first care was to protect not each individual man's life, which was impossible in those days of blind barbarism, but at least his dwelling. Imperceptibly the sanctuary of a man's house extended first to towns of refuge, then to certain public places such as the church, the malam or place of national assemblies, the market, the tavern, etc. It was next required that the accused, whether guilty or not, should remain unharmed from the time of the crime being committed until the day on which judgment was passed. This right of revenge, besides being thus circumscribed as to locality, was also subject to certain rules as to time. Sunday, and the principal feasts of the year, such as Advent, Christmas week, and from that time to the Epiphany, from the Ascension to the day of Pentecost, certain vigils, etc., were all occasions upon which the right of revenge could not be exercised. The power of the king, says a clever and learned writer, partook to a certain degree of that of God and of the saints. It was his province to calm human passions. By the moral power of his seal and his hand, he extended peace over the great lines of communication, through the forests, along the principal rivers, the highways and the byways, etc. The Treve du Dieu, in 1035, was the logical application of these humane principles. We must not suppose that justice in those days was dispensed without formalities, and that there were no regular intervals between the various steps to be gone through before final judgment was given and in consequence of which some guarantee was afforded that the decisions arrived at were carefully considered. No one was tried without having been previously summoned to appear before the tribunal. Under the Carlovingians, as in previous times, the periods when judicial courts were held were regulated by the moon. Preference was given to the day on which it entered the first quarter, or during the full moon. The summonses were returnable by moons or quarter-moons, that is, every seventh day. The summonses were issued four times, after which, if the accuser did not appear, he lost the right of counterplea or was non-suited. The Salic law allowed but two summonses before a count, which had to be issued at an interval of forty nights the one from the other. The third, which summoned the accused before the king, was issued fourteen nights later, and if he did not put in an appearance before sunset on the fourteenth day, he was placed hors de sa parole, his goods were confiscated, and he forfeited the privilege of any kind of refuge. Among the Visigoths, justice was equally absolute from the count to the tithe-gatherer. Each magistrate had his tribunal and his special jurisdiction. These judges called to their assistance assessors or colleagues, either Rochimburgs, who were elected from freemen, or provosts, or échevins, scabini, whose appointment was of an official and permanent character. The scabins, created by Charlemagne, were the first elected magistrates. They numbered seven for each bench. They alone prepared the cases and arranged as to the sentence. The count or his delegate alone presided at the tribunal and pronounced the judgment. Every vassal enjoyed the right of appeal to the sovereign, 
who with his court alone decided the quarrels between ecclesiastics and nobles and between private individuals who were specially under the royal protection criminal business was specially referred to the sovereign the misi or the count palatine final appeal lay with the count palatine in all cases in which the public peace was endangered such as in revolts or in armed encounters as early as the time of the invasion the franks bavarians and visigoths when investigating cases began by an inquiry and previously to having recourse to trials before a judge they examined witnesses on oath then he who swore to the matter was believed and acquitted accordingly this system was no doubt flattering to human veracity but unfortunately it gave rise to abuses which it was thought would be avoided by calling the family and friends of the accused to take an oath and it was then administered by requiring them to place their hands on the crucifix on some relics or on the consecrated host these witnesses who were called conjuratores came to attest before the judges not the fact itself but the veracity of the person who invoked their testimony the number and respectability of the conjuratores varied according to the importance of the case in dispute gregory of tours relates that king gontran being suspicious as to the legitimacy of the child who afterwards became clotaire the second his mother fredegonda called in the impartial testimony of certain nobles these to the number of three hundred with three bishops at their head tribus episcopis et trecentis viris optimis swore or as we say made an affidavit and the queen was declared innocent the laws of the burgundians and of the anglians were even more severe than those of the germanic race for they granted to the disputants trial by combat after having employed the ordeal of red-hot iron and of scalding water the franks adopted the judicial duel this was imposed first upon the disputing parties then on the witnesses and sometimes even on the judges themselves dating from the reign of the emperor otho the great in nine sixty seven the judicial duel which had at first been restricted to the most serious cases was had recourse to in almost all suits that were brought before the courts neither women old men children nor infirm persons were exempted when a person could not himself fight he had to provide a champion whose sole business was to take in hand the quarrels of others ecclesiastics were obliged in the same manner to fight by deputy the champion or substitute required of course to be paid beforehand if the legend of the dog of montargis is to be believed the judicial duel seems to have been resorted to even against an animal in the twelfth century europe was divided so to speak into two vast judicial zones the one southern gallo-roman and visigoth the other northern and western half germanic and half scandinavian anglian or saxon christianity established common ties between these different legislations and imperceptibly softened their native coarseness although they retained the elements of their pagan and barbaric origin sentences were not as yet given in writing they were entrusted to the memory of the judges who had issued them and when a question or dispute arose between the interested parties as to the terms of the decision which had been pronounced 
an inquiry was held and the court issued a second decision called a recordatum as long as the king's court was a movable one the king carried about with him the original text of the law in rolls rotely it was in consequence of the seizure of a number of these by the english during the reign of philip augustus in eleven ninety four that the idea was suggested of preserving the text of all the laws as state archives and of opening authentic registers of decisions in civil and criminal cases as early as the time of charles the bald the inconvenience was felt of the high court of the count being movable from place to place and having no special locality where instructions might be given as to modes of procedure for the hearing of witnesses and for keeping the accused in custody etc a former statute provided for this probable difficulty but there seems to be no proof that previous to the twelfth century any fixed courts of justice had been established the kings and likewise the counts held courts in the open air at the entrance to the palace or in some other public place under a large tree for instance as st louis did in the wood of vincennes m de mez in his valuable researches on the history of the parliament of paris says in eleven ninety one philip augustus before starting for palestine established bailiwicks which held their assizes once a month during their sitting they heard all those who had complaints to make and gave summary judgment the bailiff's assize was held at stated periods from time to time and at a fixed place it was composed of five judges the king deciding the number and quality of the persons who were to take part in the deliberations of the court for each session the royal court only sat when it pleased the king to order it it accompanied the king wherever he went so that it had no settled place of residence louis the ninth ordered that the courts of the nobles should be consolidated with the king's court and succeeded in carrying out this reform the bailiffs who were the direct delegates of the sovereign power assumed an authority before which even the feudal lord was obliged to bend because this authority was supported by the people who were at that time organized in corporations and these corporations were again bound together in communes under the bailiffs a system was developed the principles of which more nearly resembled the roman legislation than the right of custom which it nevertheless respected and the judicial trial by duel completely disappeared inquiries and appeals were much resorted to in all kinds of proceedings and louis the ninth succeeded in controlling the power of the ecclesiastical courts which had been much abused in reference to excommunication he also suppressed the arbitrary and ruinous confiscations which the nobles had unjustly made on their vassals the edict of twelve seventy six very clearly established the jurisdiction of parliaments and bailiwicks it defined the important duties of the bailiffs and at the same time specified the mode in which proceedings should be taken it also regulated the duties of counsel maitre des requêtes auditors and advocates to the bailiwicks in existence louis the ninth added the four great assizes of vermandois of saint of saint pierre le moustier and of macon to act as courts of final appeal from the judgment of the nobles philip le bel went still further for in twelve eighty seven 
he invited all those who possessed temporal authority in the kingdom of france to appoint for the purpose of exercising civil jurisdiction a bailiff a provost and some sergeants who were to be laymen and not ecclesiastics and if there should be ecclesiastics in the said offices to remove them he ordered besides that all those who had cases pending before the court of the king and the secular judges of the kingdom should be furnished with lay attorneys though the chapters as well as the abbeys and convents were allowed to be represented by canons m de Mez adds this really amounted to excluding ecclesiastics from judicial offices not only from the courts of the king but also from those of the nobles and from every place in which any temporal jurisdiction existed at the time of his accession hugh capet was the count of paris and as such was invested with judicial powers which he resigned in nine eighty seven on the understanding that his county of paris after the decease of the male heirs of his brother eudes should return to the crown in ten thirty two a new magistrate was created called the provost of paris whose duty it was to give assistance to the bourgeois in arresting persons for debt this functionary combined in his own person the financial and political chief of the capital he was also the head of the nobility of the county he was independent of the governor and was placed above the bailiffs and seneschals he was the senior of the urban magistracy and police leader of the municipal troops and in a word the prefect praefectus urbis as he was called under the emperor aurelian or the first magistrate of lutetia as he was still called under clotaire in six sixty three assessors were associated with the provost and together they formed a tribunal which was afterwards known as the chatelet because they assembled in that fortress the building of which is attributed to julius caesar the functions of this tribunal did not differ much from those of the royal chatelanese its jurisdiction embraced quarrels between individuals assaults revolts disputes between the universities and the students and improper conduct generally in consequence of which the provost acquired the popular surname of roi des ribots at first his judgment was final but very soon those under his jurisdiction were allowed to appeal to parliament and that court was obliged to have certain cases sent back for judgment from the chatelet this was however done only in a very few important instances notwithstanding frequent appeals being made to its supreme arbitration in addition to the courts of the counts and bailiffs established in certain of the large towns aldermanic or magisterial courts existed which rather resembled the chatelet of paris thus the capiolat of toulouse the senior alderman of metz and the burgomaster of strasbourg and brussels possessed in each of these towns a tribunal which judged without appeal and united the several functions of a civil criminal and simple police court several places in the north of france had provosts who held courts whose duties were various but who were principally charged with the maintenance of public order and with suppressing disputes and conflicts arising from the privileges granted to the trade corporations whose importance especially in flanders had much increased since the twelfth century 
on his return from abroad louis the ninth took his seat upon the bench and administered justice by the side of the good provost of paris this provost was none other than the learned etienne boileau out of respect to whom the provostship was declared a charge de magistrature the increase of business which fell to the provost's office especially after the boundaries of paris were extended by philip augustus caused him to be released from the duty of collecting public taxes he was authorized to furnish himself with competent assistants who were employed with matters of minor detail and he was allowed the assistance of juge auditeur we order that they shall be eight in number says an edict of philip le bel of february thirteen twenty four four of them being ecclesiastics and four laymen and that they shall assemble at the chatelet two days in the week to take into consideration the suits and causes in concert with our provost in thirteen forty three the provost's court was composed of one king's attorney one civil commissioner two king's counsel eight councillors and one criminal commissioner whose sittings took place daily at the chatelet from the year thirteen forty this tribunal had to adjudicate in reference to all the affairs of the university and from the sixth of october thirteen eighty to all those of the salt-fish market which were no less numerous so that its importance increased considerably unfortunately numerous abuses were introduced into this municipal jurisdiction in thirteen thirteen and thirteen twenty the officers of the chatelet were suspended on account of the extortions which they were guilty of and the king ordered an inquiry to be made into the matter the provost and two councillors of the parliament sat upon it and philip de valois adopting its decisions prescribed fresh statutes which were naturally framed in such a way as to show the distrust in which the chatelet was then held to these the officers of the chatelet promised on oath to submit the ignorance and immorality of the lay officers who had been substituted for the clerical caused much disturbance parliament authorized two of its principal members to examine the officers of the chatelet twenty years later on the receipt of fresh complaints parliament decided that three qualified councillors chosen from its own body should proceed with the king's attorney to the chatelet so as to reform the abuses and informalities of that court end of section twenty three recording by donna stewart seattle washington